Please take your Bible and turn to the book of 2 Timothy. And the text for the morning message is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to join along in whichever version of the Bible you have in hand. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. But Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. But Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Rejection is a bitter pill to swallow. It's dispensed by various people in our lives, sometimes by a spouse sometimes from a parent, sometimes by a brother or a sister, maybe a teacher at school, a coach of a sport that you're involved in. It could come from someone whom you don't even know. You just casually brush by a person who is the purveyor of rejection in your life. The Apostle Paul was well acquainted with rejection His life really reads, if you read it carefully, as a series of rejections from others in fulfillment of the promise of Christ that we read about in the book of Matthew, the 10th chapter. People will hate you because of your association with me. And people do respond negatively to us based on our association with Christ. But some people just respond in rejecting us without any reference whatsoever to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just part of our life. We're even rejected sometimes in the context of a local church. That really stings because we assume in a place like this with people like this that people will not hold grudges against us, will not ignore us. They won't walk past us as if we don't exist. They care about us because allegedly Jesus Christ, the ultimate caregiver, lives in their lives. Paul speaks earlier in the book of 2 Timothy 
about the fact that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a given. Paul, of course, as I've mentioned, experienced this in his own life. He was not speaking or writing out of a vacuum. Jesus himself described in advance of his coming by the prophet Isaiah, he would be despised and rejected by men. And certainly he was. In the scene at the end of the time that he spent with his apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane, you may recall that when Jesus was arrested, the Scripture says in Mark 14:50 that they all fled and deserted him. Jesus understands rejection. In John's Gospel, as he introduces the Gospel, he speaks of Jesus as the true light who coming into the world enlightens every man. And the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. Those who were His own rejected Him. Can you imagine your own family rejecting you? Jesus was preaching. And we are told about this in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew. His mother and brothers and even some of His sisters show up to where He's preaching. And they send someone inside the house where He's preaching. He's just crowded with people. And they give the messenger the message, tell Jesus to come home. It was not because He was needed to do something at home. It's because they were embarrassed that their big brother was behaving as He was claiming to be. The Messiah. Jesus knew rejection. From the get-go, He knew rejection. You may recall that even while He was an infant, Herod sought Him out to kill Him. Even as a baby, that was the case with the Lord Jesus. Even in His own hometown, when He finally began His public ministry, He took up the scroll on the Sabbath after He had been baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. And he opened it to the text which had to do with the Messiah. And he said after having finished it, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your midst. And they took him and took him to the brow of the hill. It's actually a cliff upon which his hometown Nazareth sat to throw him over, to kill him. But the worst rejection Jesus ever received was at the hands of His own Father, Father God. The Bible talks about how Jesus cried out in dereliction, as some have said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me when He was on the cross? We cannot begin to sense the agony that Jesus went through in that moment, experiencing the actual rejection of God the Father. And you say, how can you say that, Mike? Is it true? Is it true? Yes, it is true. Because the Bible says in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, God has such pure eyes He can't even look on sin. And we know that God the Father made Jesus Christ the Son to become sin on our behalf in order that we might be made right with God. Jesus knows rejection. Paul knew rejection. Anybody who follows Christ is going to have a certain amount of rejection. So, 
let's take this text of Scripture and find out how we can properly handle rejection when it comes our way. I'm going to ask a series of questions, four precisely, and then make one statement as we work our way through this passage of Scripture. The first question is, should you deny that you feel rejected if you are rejected? And the answer is no. You shouldn't whine about it. You should own it and say, yeah, this hurts. It's not pleasant to be rejected. We often refuse to admit that we have suffered rejection all in the name of spiritual maturity. We think we should be bigger than that. Well, we will grow to the point where it doesn't hurt us as badly, not because we've sealed ourselves off from all people who have and might reject us or steeled ourselves emotionally against such scenarios in our lives. We are, at the same time, as spiritually mature people, able to own it and not be devastated by it. Once admitted... We must refuse to be defined by rejection. Allow me some illustrations. In the field of art, many of you have seen the sculpt, sculpture of Rodin's The Thinker. Have you seen that before? Rodin's father said, I have an idiot for a son. How's that for affirmation from a father to a son? I have an idiot for a son is what... Rodin's father said. And he was not encouraged by his art teachers either. In the art area of science, Albert Einstein couldn't talk until he was four years old. Could not read until he was seven years old. His teachers said about him, he's mentally slow. He's unsociable. He's adrift in his own dreams. He sought admission to the most prestigious school in Switzerland, in Zurich, the Polytechnic School. And he was not admitted. Arguably one of the top ten known geniuses in the history of mankind. And he could not even get acceptance. He was rejected. But, just as was the case with Rodin, it was true with this man, Albert Einstein. He refused to be defined by having been Rejected in the field of music. Enrico Caruso, the great Italian tenor. His first voice teacher said, you don't have the voice to sing, much less opera. You might as well quit now. Well, he didn't take that lying down, did he? He got up and he went forward, refusing to be defined by that. The authoress of Little Women, many of you have read her works. And her family said to Miss Alcott, said to her, why don't you look for a job as a seamstress? You sew very well. Well, she probably did sew very well. But she also wrote even much better. Amazing, isn't it? Her family said that. In the area of entertainment, Walt Disney, his first job, he served on a newspaper and 
did cartoon work, and he was fired by the editor who told Mr. Disney, Walt, you just don't have enough good ideas. And by the way, he went bankrupt several times before he finally got his dream to come true in the form of Disneyland. It's amazing. And it wouldn't be a message that I give if I have opportunity to talk about some sports figure, so I'm going to go ahead and not disappoint anybody. <laughs> One of the all-time great coaches in the NFL, Vince Lombardi, when he had his first interview for a coaching position, the notes of the person who interviewed went like this. Possesses no fundamental knowledge of football. Lacks motivation. Wow. He didn't take that, did he? As the thing which defined him went on to lead the Packers to many championships. And then a man who's influenced my life directly. These others have not influenced my life directly, but a man who has impacted my life. Really, I should say the Lord impacted my life through this man. His name was Campbell Morgan. Mr. Morgan was a preacher, a teacher of the Bible. He lived in the latter part of the 19th and until almost midpoint in the 20th century. Before I was born, he died. But his writings... To this day, my library has probably a dozen or more books which he wrote. And he has ministered to me. The Lord has ministered to me through his writings. When he was a young, aspiring preacher, he got the idea that he wanted to be a Methodist preacher. And so he stood before a panel of people who really were auditing him to see if he had the goods to breathe be a preacher in the Methodist church. They listened to his sermon, asked him to leave. He came back in and they said to him, Mr. Morgan, we do not believe you have what it takes to be a preacher. His father, who was himself a lay preacher in some other part of Great Britain, received a telegram from him and it was a one-word telegram. And it went like this, rejected. The father quickly sent back a reply. Rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. And the rest, as they say, is history. This man became one of the leading preachers of God's Word. Look, when you are rejected, don't listen to the voice of those who would put you down and misread you. Listen for the voice of the Lord in Scripture. In the book of 1 John chapter 3, the Bible talks to us who know Christ as to what should define us. In 1 John chapter 3 verse 1, the Scripture says, See what great love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. Do you know what defines you and me? It's the love of God for us. When John writes those words... In 1 John chapter 3, see what great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. The word translated, what kind of love, or great a love, it literally means what kind of otherworldly love. It's a love that cannot be experienced in this life apart from a personal relationship with God. This is the love of God which defines you. And it doesn't matter 
whether you ever measure up in the minds of other people. If you know the Lord and you're growing in the Lord, you will be set on the pathway of being used by Him to make a difference, not just for time, but for eternity. Behold what manner of love the God, God the Father has bestowed upon us. The word hath bestowed. Literally, this word means has bestowed and will not pull the rug out from under us. In John 6.37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And listen to this. And the one who comes to me, one, we come to him one at a time. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. I will not never, is literally what Jesus said. I will not never cast that person out. This is what defines us. We must learn to capitalize on rejection. G.K. Chesterton, perhaps you've never heard the name, probably very few have. He was among the greater apologists for the Christian faith in the early 20th century. He was a great Britain resident. He was a journalist. He was a Roman Catholic. He wrote books like The Everlasting Man, which is a classic. He wrote his book, Orthodoxy, talking about the orthodox faith of Christianity, not Roman Catholicism, but Christianity. And he was a great apologist. He was possessed of a tremendous wit, too. This is what he said. He said, I like being in hot water. It keeps me clean. As I've looked over my life, and it's considerable now, in its length, I have discovered that when I'm in some sort of trouble, including being rejected by other people, it's those times that the Lord has used to help me to grow more than any compliment I've ever received or any word of encouragement because it's drawn me to the Lord. The book of First Peter, if you know the subject of the book of First Peter, it's written to a group of people who are under great duress. Nero the fiend Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he had it in for Christians in particular. He had them tarred and lit a fire to provide light on the Appian Way as people entered and left Rome. Well, this word is given by the Word of God to this group of people to whom it was sent. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Are you rejected this morning? Do you know Jesus? Then look at this as an opportunity to be drawn closer to the Lord. Be done with rebellion against God. Be done with dabbling in sinful thoughts and activities. Should you deny that you feel it? Absolutely not. The second question is, should you distance yourself from people? And once again, the answer is no. When rejected, we tend to not make ourselves vulnerable again. Isn't that true? It hurts so badly. We don't want to put ourselves in a position to get hurt. You know the old saying, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So what that says is we just withdraw and we're not going to let anybody hurt us again. Have you ever thought that way? 
there's probably more than one person in this room who finds herself or himself in that situation. But look what Paul says in verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. And then look at verse 13, the very beginning. When you come, he, he's looking forward to coming, that for Timothy's coming to him. Then glance down the page at verse 21. Make every effort to come before winter. Do you sense he wanted to have the company of his son in the faith, Timothy? By all means. And he's just said, if you look back up in verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And at the last part of verse 6, the time of my departure has come. He's on the brink of leaving this world. And remember what he says in the book of Philippians. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He was looking forward. He didn't have some kind of morbid wish for death. He knew where he was going and with whom he would be for eternity. And then verse 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. Look, Jesus was more than enough for Paul. But he still had that desire for human fellowship. And that is not a sign of immaturity. That's a sign of being truly human. To be with someone. And he was not just thinking about himself. I'm sure he was thinking about Timothy. Because we know from First and Second Timothy, Timothy was very fragile. He was one who had suffered rejection at the hands of the church that he was leading and had been appointed to be the leader by none other than the Apostle Paul himself. And he knew this young man needed reassurance. He needed the help. And here's the good news. We need each other. And the most mature woman or man in this room spiritually is still in need of fellowship with other people. We will never outgrow that need. Thank God. It's going to go on throughout eternity. We're going to be with each other. We'll be focused on Jesus, but we will also be serving each other in heaven. So we're not to distance ourselves from people. We need to understand that the idea of hope and love in Christ is not incompatible with hope and love from other people in whom Christ dwells. He ministers through us to one another. Here's the third question. Should you despise those who reject you? Look at verse 10. The answer is no to that. Look at verse 10. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What makes this even more dramatic is if we go to the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verse 14, written years before this letter was written, something had happened in that interim period because Paul speaks of Demas in glowing terms. He says, Demas, my fellow worker. They had yoked up together in the work of the gospel, but because something had happened in Demas' life, he had become infatuated with the world again. And he had deserted. That stings. Perhaps you've had that happen to you. Someone into whom you have poured your life spiritually, and that person abandoned you. Paul knew that. Jesus understood that and still understands it. 
And we must understand it too. And the Apostle Paul rests his case with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is awesome. Let's look how he handles this. And it gives us insight. In verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. You know, I have a way, and I'm probably the only person in the room like this, but I have a way of settling this in my own mind. And I become the judge and jury of the person who has hurt me. And I just try that person over and over and over again. Anybody in here besides me ever do that? And before long, what I see, there's a root of bitterness taking hold of my heart. And the Bible warns us against letting the root of bitterness take over because it will not only ruin me, but it will also ruin all those around me. It's poisonous. And so... We'd be wise to leave this in the hands. Rest our case with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at 15. Be on guard against him yourself. We shouldn't stick our heads in the sand when there's an Alexander the coppersmith around who does harm to us. It's not like that. He opposed the teaching of Paul. So he was a false teacher himself. And look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one supported me. Can you imagine how lonely Paul was? But all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. How generous. It's impossible to have that heart apart from Jesus Christ having been set apart as Lord in our hearts. It's impossible. And so, we trust the Lord to do what only He can do well. And that is to right wrongs. We cannot do it. Vincent Van Gogh, you know the name? His art is beautiful. Isn't it so colorful? You may not know that he was a pastor's son. You may not know that he memorized Scripture by the reams when he was a boy. He loved studying the Bible. And he wanted to share what he had learned with others. He would go to a nearby Methodist chapel. His father was Dutch Reformed and he was a Reformed person too. Never mind that Reformation theology and Arminian theology collided in that place where he went. But he asked, could I help? Could I teach? Could I preach? And he was given opportunity. He had a little success in his own mind. And so he applied for theological school in Amsterdam. He went there and he couldn't cut it. His academics, especially in the area of the study of Greek, were not good. So he left. He had heard about a school for lay preachers in nearby Brussels, Belgium. He went there. He spent a year there. Upon finishing the class there, he applied to become a missionary with a mission board. He was rejected. Not to be put away completely, he made his way to stay in Belgium. He went to a coal mining district, and he would go down into the mines and minister to the miners, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He rented a little dance hall. When it was not being used for dances, he would teach the gospel and preach the gospel. Uh, Another mission society was contacted. They agreed to give him a six-month trial. They sent the equivalent of $10 a month at that time to take care of his needs. When the six months was up, they pulled the plug on the support. He was devastated. He wrote to his father, Pastor Father. Father, the church is abominable is the word which he used. It's awful. He turned away from 
the church because of rejection. Don't do that. If you've had rejection from the church, shame on the church. Shame on me if I've been a part of that. But get right with the people who have rejected you. Go and share them with them. And by the way, if you become one of those people, don't start defending yourself. Just listen lovingly and say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And be a part of restoring someone who may have been rejected by the church or you or both. Here's the last thing. Question, should you drop out of ministry? And you say, okay, Mike, you can go by this one real quickly because you're in the ministry and I'm not. But if you think that way, you misunderstand the church of Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says, Christ gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints. That would be everybody who's not an apostle or not a prophet or not an evangelist or not a pastor and not a teacher. All of us have been gifted. Christ gave the gifted speaking gift people for equipping the saints for, listen carefully, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, you may not have a speaking gift, but you are invaluable to the body. And we work together. There is no such thing as a one-man band. Jesus is the only one-man band who ever was when it comes to the good news of the gospel. We're not to drop out. Amazing. Madeline Lingle, you know about her? And let me just say, I should substantiate what I said from the Bible. It's in this text. So before I forget, let's look at the text one more time in this matter. Look at verse 11, the second part. Pick up Mark. And remember, there had been a rupture in the relationship between John Mark and Paul. John Mark had bailed on Barnabas and Saul and Paul, later known as Paul, in their first missionary journey. And when time came to make the second trip, there was an argument between Barnabas and Paul as to whether they should take Mark with them again. And Paul said, by no means. We can't afford the weight of him on this trip. It's too important. Barnabas and John Mark went their way. Aren't you glad Barnabas put his arm around this young man who had failed? And he encouraged him. And what happened? He became useful to Paul. Isn't that what Paul says here? He is useful to me for service. The word service is the word which means ministry, actually. It's the word diakonia, which is the word deacon comes from. Servant. Minister is what it is. And then, if you look down at verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak. He was cold. He was in a damp, dank, dark dungeon, if you will. The maritime prison in Rome at this time, waiting execution. Bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books. Here's a good point especially the parchments. The parchments would be the equivalent of the Bible. It would have been Old Testament books written out on either papyrus or vellum, which would be animal skin. Bring them. And books. Why did he want books? 
the dude had read no telling how many books by now. He's my age probably, or a little younger. He's in his 60s. And why does he need to read another book? Well, because he believed what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your mind. He still wanted to be sharp. So when he interacted with Nero or others from the household of Caesar, he would be sharp. He could relate to them on a way that would not let his illiteracy stand in the way of his being used by the Lord. He was still in the fight, wasn't he? Madame Lingle, many of you read her books, A Wrinkle in Time was made into a movie. It was a terrible representation, by the way, of the book. The people who got hold of it just messed it up. had no resemblance, really, to the story in the book. She wrote with a Christian understanding, allegorically. And her first book suffered 43 rejections from different editors. Can you believe it? I would have quit after four, probably. Forty-three. Unbelievable. But she didn't give up. She didn't take that. Now, here's the positive statement for us as we near the end of the message. If we shouldn't deny that we feel rejection, if we should distance ourselves from people, the answer is no. We shouldn't despise those who reject us. We shouldn't drop out of our work for the Lord. We should depend on Christ. Look at verses 17 and 18. But the Lord stood with me. So the Lord will stand with you when you're rejected. He is near to the brokenhearted, the Bible says, and strengthen those who are crushed in spirit. People can crush your spirit just like that, can't they? We've all done it to other people. Help us to outgrow that, Lord. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Paul says, writing to the Thessalonians, The Lord will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. The Lord is near, Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 5. The Lord is near. And consequently, He stands by me. And He strengthens me. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. This is probably a reference to out of the, the mouth of our adversary, the devil, who roars like a, a, a ravenous lion. It could have been he was snatched from the jaws of actual lions in the Colosseum, in the, in the games. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. Do you know this life is like a vapor? It's going fast, isn't it? And we who know Christ, we're blessed to be people through whom the Lord can minister to others. We can pour into people. We are to be disciples of Christ, and a disciple helps disciple other people. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, let me give you four ideas that emerge from this text as we finish today. First idea is, when rejected, don't isolate yourself. Hebrews 10, verse 25. It says 24, but it's verse 25, I think. Hebrews 10, 24, 25. It's in that general area. It says, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. How frequently? All the more 
daily, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 3.13, but all the more as you see the day approaching, talking about the second coming of Christ. As that time nears, what we're to do is congregate with each other. I'm not talking about in a place like this. This is good. But the best scenario is when you can get in a small group with people, one-on-one, informally or formally, at other times of the week besides this day of the week. Thank God for this kind of meeting. But I'll be quite frank. I think it's inferior, to be honest, in terms of the best growth you can get to times when you're alone with a small group of people one-on-one and you're really fellowshipping with the Lord, not just hanging out together. I'm talking about getting into the Word and praying together. So don't isolate yourself when you've been rejected. Secondly, leave revenge in God's hands. Romans 12:19 says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord will repay people when they have mistreated you and rejected you. Let Him handle it. Fretting and fussing over rejection. It's wasting your life. You're fixating on that. Instead of keeping your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus fulfilled His mission. He would not be deterred. We know the first thing He said when He was crucified that we have record of. What was it? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Thirdly, don't give up your ministry to the body of Christ. In the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says this, So, And let us not lose heart in doing good. It's so easy to lose heart in doing good, isn't it? The devil hates it when we do that which the Lord designed us to do. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, even our enemies, by the way, all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Don't give up when you're rejected. The last thing is, draw near to God when rejected. That's what Paul did. The Lord stood by him. The Lord strengthened him. And he knew the Lord was going to save him and take him to his heavenly kingdom. When it all ended in this world, that was going to happen. In Psalm 73, 28, let me read this to you as we finish. But as for me, Asaph was the human author. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. We know about Paul. He didn't curl up in the fetal position when he was in the prison, his last resort where he lived. He didn't do that. He was undoubtedly continuing to minister to people, to share the gospel with the guards who guarded him and any court official that he came into contact with. He was a walking gospel man, sharing the Lord and the love of God with others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity we've had to think about you, think about these things. We trust you, Lord.
to do your work in us. Amen. I'm going to ask Eric Jimenez to piggyback on that prayer and particularly pray, Eric, if you will, in closing, about our reaching the world for Christ. Would you do that? Let's stand together as we have our closing prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the great reminder, Lord, of how we're called to seek you. Lord, as you tell us in your word, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Father, we need you. And you use every situation, every opportunity, Father God, to glorify your name. And so, Lord, we come to you as a congregation this morning. And we seek your your face, Father. We seek your presence in our lives, Father. We come to you uh, proclaiming your name, Father, through the work of your Son, Christ. And, Lord, as we leave and we depart, we just pray that you would remind us, Father, of our calling to tell people about you. Father, I pray that you would help us to set ourselves aside from this great commission that you have entrusted us with. Father, I pray that you would help us to not get in the way of your will and your plans. Lord, and that you will receive the honor and the glory, Father, that you would be praised, Father, because it's you that we are here for. And, Father, it's our number one thing to do is to glorify your name and to share you with people. And so, Lord, as we go our separate ways, I pray that you would give us the wisdom that we need, discernment, Father, a desire to be in your word so that we can then share. Father, and we know that we cannot do this without your spirit. And so, Father, we do pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord. May we praise you throughout the week and may we focus on you, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.